I'm breaking by having a class which is somewhat, like I said, it's the second inning. It's the bottom of the inning of what we did last week. Uh, but I do think the class will stand on its own. I do think people who, uh, who missed last week's, um, and if you didn't, if you did miss last week's, you know, check us out on the link that I send out. Um, it goes to the OneDrive, and you're going to be able to scroll down, and you'll see. And look, look for the New Jersey Giants, and you'll see there the uh, thing from last week. So this is sort of a continuation of last week, and, and I hope it will illuminate a lot of things that isn't just part of a history, like I said, of ghosts, but actually still has some relevance and importance. And I've done a lot of thinking about the importance of, of this research and, and why it's worth the time. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes, because I actually spoke to uh, two pretty impressive historians. Uh, one of them was my mentor, and one of them, or, or a Reb, an older Habrus of mine, and one was one of my students, who uh, has now uh, far exceeded me in, in, in what his contributions to, to Jewish history, and I'll talk about both of them in a, in a, in a couple of minutes. But they both, I, I, I spoke to both of them about this project, thank and you. I'll thank tell you, you, thank you, Nick, enjoy. Okay, so first of all, you know, I want to mention you know, our dedicator, uh, uh, Leon. Um, in commemoration of the Shloshim of his mother. We're going to try to bring in a minion here, hopefully by the end, so we'll be able to say Kaddish to Ravana. Yechebet Basmatis Halevi. And uh, I think it's, <laughs> obviously, you know, I know she was known as Joan, but Yechebet from Beis Levi, it sort of like lent itself for me to just put a couple of Divrei Chazal here. And as you can see here, uh, I know this is the Shloshim of your mom, and that's very fresh. My friend, the husband, Leon, was, was kind enough to send me the husband that he said at the Levaya last couple, you know, a month ago. Uh, and as you can see, it says, So the Medrash says, Wisdom of women is what really builds the house, creates the house. Um, Leon has, has, has spoke so eloquently at the Levaya and shared with me how important his mom was for, for the house to function well, how she did so many things taking care of your brothers and your dad and picking them up and everything like that. I think uh, she clearly was the opinion of the house from the way you said it. Um, and, again, I didn't see a picture of her, but it's not really about her physical beauty. It says, So the Medrash HaGodel, which is a Yemenite Medrash, which some wasn't found in other sources, it says, What does that name Yocheved mean? I'm trying to make this bigger. Show you Poneha Domen Kavod. The word Yochevet has the idea of Kavod in it. And I guess you have the, you have two of the letters of the name of God, Yudvav and Kavod. So in other words, there was a sense of, of, of radiance, of the glory of God uh, in, in, in that name. So that is a beautiful idea that, and that might be one of the reasons why Amram takes her back and why they have that relationship is because she radiates the idea of the glory of God. And based on what you described, the relationship between your mom and dad, I thought that was also appropriate. And also, the Medrash, uh, regular Medrash Rabbah says, Loma Nikrashma, we know Shifra was Yochebed, right? That was the two midwives, Shifra and Pua, and, and Yochebed was Shifra. Why was she called Shifra, which is the, is, is the Aramaic term for beautiful and nice? So one thing is, she's Shifra myself of Nailo Kim, that she, her actions were beautiful in God's eyes. Uh, Leon, you've talked about how she was a woman who, who worked for the service of the Jewish people and, and was very dedicated to Jewish identity and to the shul that she was connected to. Um, and also, I don't know if this is if this, if this brings a bell, but I thought it was beautiful 
that we know that she had a, a, a partner in this job, her, her very young daughter, her young child, uh, Miriam. And they both together, incredibly, according to Chazal, were really leaders in terms of saving Jewish lives and being involved with big, powerful people. So the Medrash says that she actually spoke and defended and was able to defend her daughter. I can imagine, you know, Miriam was headstrong. She she wasn't, you know, she was she was a strong woke girl. She fought with her dad, and you can imagine that maybe she she spoke up even uh, in the in the in the sake of power, as kids are want to do. So it says in the Medrash that Yocheved said to Paro, "Kumata In other words, Tinokasi. In other words, she protected her child uh, in, in in the face of power protecting them and guiding them. Again, I would assume that your mom probably, uh, I don't think you were a problem child, but I'm sure your mom, I'm sure your mom did, a, I'm sure your mom was a, was a good interlocutor between you and your teachers and other things like that. And you see, that's what she did. She was mishaper, her children's, and, 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 and that meant a lot to them. Uh, why she called Shifra? Shehimida Because she caused Klal Yisrael to come back to, for God. And that's the idea of Shifra, is the beauty of the world, that God wants the world to be in that state of tikkun, that state of, of beauty. And she is one of the people who was most responsible for that. So that's a great namesake to have. But I actually found this thing to be very relevant, not only to you, Leon, but I think to us as we, as you know, we go through the summer, you know, I talked about here the boys of summer, the uh, the New Jersey Giants, and I talked about the innings and stuff like that, giving you the sense of the season. And a part of that is part, yeah, part of that is sort of like to uh, you know, uh, my good friend Rabbi Katz comments that he feels that sometimes I I I, I go into oh, I'm not serious enough as a historian presenting, but um, you know he says you know what, show them that you have humor afterwards, but don't you know don't uh, give them a bunch of jokes. In your advertising and stuff, let them let them come and be pleasantly surprised when when, when you're not this morose, uh, uh, you know, uh, lethargic guy who's just droning on. So again, I, I that's one of my weaknesses. I try to to I feel that's part of what we're about. But um, I think here this is something that uh, really speaks to all of us because as we are here in the summer, and, and we can't deny the fact that. Soon again, all of us were thinking, "Oh boy, you know, we sort of have this grace period in between Shavuos and Shavuos and Batamas. And now we know Shavuos and Batamas is on its way. We're thinking about not only the heat of the summer, but also the idea of Avelos and Horbin and thinking about all that. So it's interesting how Yocheved and Amram actually have a parallel. And this is an incredible uh, statement from the Ramami Panel. I'll finish it off here because it's still worthwhile to hear for all of you. Um, First of all, he says, and he, of course, was a Kabbalist who was a student of a student of the Arizal. In other words, he's two, two, sta- two uh, things away from the Ari. And if you can see it, he says, Yocheved is really Kivodi. You take the name Yocheved and you put the words around. It's my glory, similar to what we saw before, the glory of God. Moshe, of course, was a miracle child. Moshe, you know, again... <laughs> Aaron and Miriam were also, she was pretty old at that time, but Moshe seemed to be the child that was the most miraculous, and she had sort of given up. And when did the conception occur? Again, the Medrash is not uh, prudish. The conception occur, uh, Marmipano is not prudish. 
Shabon not al Yodo, based on the fact that he was born on Zion Other, so taking back nine months, you go backwards, so it really turns out that his conception was the day of Six Mat- months. Oh, so he disagrees with that, Chazal. He says here, again, he's the Ramami Pano, you know what I'm saying? It's not Kibalevich talking. This is a Makupal, so he must have another source for that. That, mm-hmm. that it wasn't, you know, you're right, we have a Chazal, the Gemara and Sota, that the Yankee's talking about, that Moshe was, a th- was, was three months early. It turns out, again, either way, the sixth day of Sivan is relevant. Because if you say, again, it's happen. hard to argue on a Gemara. You're right, but we know the Zohar and Midrashim and, and Kabbalah has sometimes an alternate take on it. Even if you go with the Gemara, even if you go with the Gemara, um, Yankee, it was beautiful about, even if we go with the standard Chazal approach, that he was a preemie, a super preemie, but he should have been born on what day? If he was three months early, he should have been born, because it says on, on, on basically the 6th of Sivan or the 7th of Sivan. And it turns out that that was the day that she hid him for three months. So it turns out the day that she put him in the bulrushes, so to speak, was Shavuos, right? That was what, what, what eventually becomes the day of Matan Torah. And as, as I saw in the name, I saw that Rabbi Okito says, again, uh, I do have almond milk here, so there is a reference here, but that he gets nursed by Yocheved on that day as well, because, of course, Miriam takes care of Moshe. She makes sure that he's taken care of, and she brings Yocheved to nurse him on that day. And he says that's a remez, Rabbi Yokitov says that's a remez for us eating milachiks on Shavuos, because Moshe Rabbeinu gets nursed by his mom on Shavuos with that milk that kept him, of course, as a Jew, no matter what. So that's one of the Ramazim. So he, the Ramami Pano has it the opposite. He says that he was not a preemie, but his conception. So either his conception was on Shavuos or, the, or, or his essential nursing in that uh, alien atmosphere was on Shavuos. Either way, Moshe Rabbeinu, in a way, is, a, is before that. But just take a look at this. I thought this was really important for us today. So um, what happened was she was pregnant, but Amram didn't know. They conceived them, he was conceived in, in Shruis, and the love that was Shruis on that day of Matan Torah, that would eventually be Matan Torah. But he says, she didn't show, and her husband didn't think that she was pregnant. So he was worried about her getting pregnant, and that's why he was worried about the Gzerat Hayor, the Sholchom Ibeiso Tamuz So the month of Tamuz and Av, were the months that they lived separate. This this prime couple of Amram and Yocheved lived separately during these months, which are our months also where we feel a sense of separateness from God. We feel that God, we feel that, you know, this is a difficult time, a dangerous time. And those were the months that even before, that, that was, that's when Amram sent Yocheved away. When he felt, well, maybe that's gone now, and maybe it's it's going to stop the idea of of, of the terrible trying to destroy us uh, through the the gezeira of throwing the children in the sea. So when does he bring back her? When does that occur? It occurs at the month of Elul, which we know is the ace dodim. That's really the time we reconnect with God. 
In the same way they got together again, and they, of course, had to sort of talk about, hey, I'm back, I know I sent you away. So Elul is when he took her back, which corresponds to when we feel we can actually come back and feel the love with God as well. And, of course, that was the, Elul, of course, is the is the Mazel Basula, uh, which indicates for Yocheved that she, of course, was not, she was like a young uh, person again. But again, the Rama says that even though she was many months pregnant by this time, because the conception occurred on, on, on Sivan, but still people didn't know it. And the reason was, first of all, she was tiny, uh, you know, and secondly, and secondly was, this is the part here. What she was carrying within her was something different. It was a different type of child. It was someone who had the light, uh, special type of soul, the incredible soul of Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore, the child was eventually born on the seventh of Oder. So I think Yocheved and, and, and Amram, in a way, according to this, sort of represents a template for our relationship with God, even before any of the events occurred. So Yocheved is not only this great woman who was responsible for Moshe's, but in a way, her relationship with her with her husband, in a way, is sort of sets the standard for our relationship with God and understanding of how we go through the year with God. So I wanted that Yerskos, Leon, as I did that little research this morning about it. And uh, again, I think uh, <coughs> it should be a Meva Litsa Yosha for us. Uh, in Gan Eden, and Mitz Hashem, the, the tsar that she might have had uh, through her life, especially toward the end, should be a kapar and sambainus for all of us, and for Klai Yisrael, Mitz Hashem, the same way Yocheved was zochet to see uh, the ischachas of her noraycho, she should be zochet, of course, tchias amesim, we should all see, just like with Moshe Rabbeinu's birth, we should see the coming of the next goel, the Moshiach Achron, Moshe was the first one, and we should see the Mashiach. Ah, Shane, okay, we can stop over here, but, but we, we do have a share to do. All right. Anyway, thank you again, and the Mitzvah we should only get together in Simchas. All right. So we get to the second inning, or maybe it's the bottom of the first. Uh, I call today's class, uh, not change four at 20, but change for the 20s. The 20s were, if you didn't catch that, the change for the 20s. Okay? The, all right. So it's actually, uh, things were happening. Uh, we, we, we went back to 1925 last week, um, and Mendelssohn had written this book where he felt he was being attacked. We'll talk about some of the things in that book that were sort of, he was rolling up his sleeve to show, I am a Pisic, and who's this guy convicts to come and say that I, I can't be in charge of, of Hashkocha here. Uh, he was... Uh, with a claim of all the rabbi of all the rabbis and shoals in Newark in 1921, he was given the role to be the the, the rabbi machshir. And of course, when this new rabbi comes, he says, "No, this these these he's, he's lax in hashkocha." And we're going to see a couple of the things we saw a couple of the pesukim. We'll see if one of them, I think, might have really got gotten his gotten the ire of people. We'll see that in a couple of minutes. But as we say, it was definitely a rabbinical ruckus, but it really shows you the countrywide national issues that confront an American jury. It's surprising, juvenile delinquency, there was reports uh, in 1907, I believe, it was a very famous report of the state, the commissioner of, uh, police commissioner of New York, uh, his name was Bingham, the Bingham Report. And in the Bingham Report, he said that these new immigrants that are coming uh, especially um, the Jewish ones, that they're involved in all sorts of juvenile delinquency. 
those of us that know a little bit about the Mexican gangsterism, we know that that there was a very strong tie between the murder incorporated, we know, and the, the Jews. There was right a lot of the Jewish kids that were there. It was tough. There was the East Side. It was slums. There was anti-Semitism. There was fighting. Right. You come with a knife, I come with a gun, right? We know that, right? So the point, that's Chicago, but still, I guess. But that's, what I'm saying, you know, you know, I appropriated, but that's the way it was. You know, there was fighting and pushing, and of course, it was a new world, and the Jews were involved in it, and there was this problem of the Jewish youth, which the Rabbonim had to deal with, which society had to deal with. Gangsterism was involved not only in, in getting these uh, Jewish kids and Italian kids to sort of be involved in crime, but even within, as we're going to find out in a couple of minutes, even within the official rabbinic world, there was, uh, like we talked about the butcher shops last time, um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, part of what convicts had said was that, you know, that, that these butchers uh, are all, you know, tied up, you know, good. They've agreed because they're all paying protection money to the mob. And the rabbi's on the take too, because this is all part of this mob type of thing. Uh, we talked about Swifts and there was another butcher, uh, Swifts packing and others. All of these, again, you know, the, the, uh, you'd have to be a, a, you know, a criminal sociologist to understand why it happened. But we know that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of uh, racketeering, so to speak, going on. Again, you know, we'll keep your stockyard safe, we'll keep your trucks okay, but it's going to cost you. And again, once there's any business, like a parasite, the the Costa, Costa Nostra and its Jewish cousins were on top of that as well. Um, there was labor strife, and that's part of what was going on, of course, in terms of uh, even in the Shrita issue, there was a tremendous debate of Rabbanim whether they should join the union, whether the Shoftim should join the, the slaughterers' union. Remember, it happened, the Shoftim were operating in a, a non-Jewish facility, uh, you know, that was supposedly a, a separate section, but the butchers and the people that owned the place were pushing them and making them work 15, 16-hour days, which weren't just a question of, 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 uh, Work, like, you know, the, the work conditions. It was clearly Akasha's question as well. They were tired and they were upset. If you don't have the appropriate amount of meat that, that's being slaughtered or the chickens, whatever it is, you're going to get fired. So there was testimonies that we have throughout the Chuvas farm of actually dead chickens being <laughs> slaughtered, things that were, and things like that. Again, there's a lot of horror stories in today's. We talked about that a couple of months ago and we talked about the angry birds. We talked about what they're doing you know, with these, with these monstrous birds. But in those days, maybe the birds weren't monstrous, but the attitudes of the, of, of the, of the, of the butchers and everything. So there was a, a lot of actually rabbinic discussion whether they should join the unions or not, because the unions would actually push for, um, would push for better conditions. And, 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 and there were many rabbonim, one of them, Gabriel Sev Margolis, who, uh, who said that this is actually a positive thing. Other Rabbanim felt that, that no, that's not the case. That the, uh, if they're going to get into the unions. There's communists, of course, that were involved in the unions, and the whole people who are running the unions are not into religion at all, and, and they would somehow subscribe to the union as opposed to us, the Rabbanim. So this was a, a major issue that was going on here, and it affected the Kashras as well. So the Shabbos, 
we know that you know uh, part of what Mendelssohn talked about convicts, the convicts and all this group that he's preaching to, they're all Machale Shabbos. We're going to see from some Shubas today that that many of the children, and part of this is what my friend David Katz said to me when I talked about, and again, and I don't know if listen to this tape, but, you know, he's a historian, I think one of the biggest in the United States. So I mentioned to him the comment that I made last week, which was that Rob Mendelssohn's schools of just producing Adalia Schwartz is itself great. The fact that he uh, produced a, a, a posig of, of the highest order who ended up, I can tell you, Vidali Schwartz is one of the most moral, great people that I know. Um, just parenthetically, when I was involved in many Dinei in Chicago, <laughs> in terms of a number of Gitan that we had, so Rabbi Schwartz uh, clashed horns with another Rav in Chicago about this, uh, the idea of getting a recalcitrant uh, Magarish to, uh, to beat him up. Uh, he felt that even if there was sources in Halacha, that sanctioned that, he said, we can't go against the laws of the United States, and he said that, uh, he said to me, if you're going to be in the CRC, if you're going to be with me, you have to agree never to be involved in anything like that, despite the fact that the Rahmanas that we have to have on on, on the, the poor woman who's not getting the divorce, but never, ever resort to strong-arm tactics. He was that, he was that way, and that was part of what what lived with him in that way. So, um, the, um, uh, as I said here, the, the, the Chil Shabbos, uh, <coughs> talk about the Akash's crisis, of course. There was, we mentioned them here about the Shrita and other things. Yechezka um, uh, so I want to pronounce this correctly. Uh, <laughs> uh, not, well, lambasting, you say lambast, I say lambast, you, okay. Um, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Oh, yeah, the cats, what Kat said to me was, is that it's one of the terrible um, uh, kitrugim on all these rabbonim is that why didn't they push for for schools? Why didn't they look around and, 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 and save the children that were being Machali Shabbos in droves that were just leaving so much stuff? So, again, last week I, I posited a theory about that, about how they didn't believe the schools could work, and there was so much of a difference between the wealthy and the non-wealthy, and that, um, and that's what I said. That, that was what I said last week. Still, he felt that this was something that takes away the luster uh, we're going to hear a little bit about the, the children of the the Machale, the Machale Shabbos children here. Right, so right, they were all after school programs, and, and and again, but that itself weakened it. You know, again, a kid who comes, right? Um, uh, you know, again, as we're talking about Newark, if, if you read uh, probably the most from book, the from story that Phil Roth ever wrote, which of course is uh, which is called the conversion of the Jews, and if that's the story, if you read it. You know what it's about? It's about a Talmud Torah kid who, you know, who clashes with his Rebbe. Uh, I recommend it. It's pretty good reading. It really gets you into what, what, what these Talmud Torahs are like. I assume Roth himself went uh, he's, a, he's a little bit later. But those Talmud Torahs were not what we would call the type of nurturing environment that the day schools are. Um, so um, let me say this correctly. Uh, Internecine, right? Is that the word? In, right? Internecine, internecine, right? Internecine organizational conflict. The, one of the things that happened, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century was organizing. 
the reform uh, movement and the conservative movement, um, you know, had organized themselves very strongly. Uh, and the Orthodox, who many of them, you know, had came, there was a, a section of the Orthodox Jews who had come in the mid part of the 19th century, but most of them, of course, came at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. They were from Europe, and they didn't come from a place of great organization. And, but they understood that we needed to create organizations. And within 10, 12 years, you have four or five or six different organizations that rise. And one of them, there's only one left standing. And that's, well, I won't say that from those original ones from the, from the 20s, from the turn of the century to the 20s. Uh, and that's the OU. Okay, hang on for a second. Agudas Arabanim is still officially around. I, I know. Okay. Agudas Agudas Rabbanim is actually around, but it's basically just a paperhead, you know, again, especially, but at the time, and, um, and as I said last week, there was a lot of, uh, discussion about how we need to present our Orthodox faith. They knew that they had to deal with the government. They knew that they had to be more modern, but yet was it, we're going to be modern, but we're going to, we're going to be in America, enjoy America, but we're going to have the great European values and we're going to have a very high standard of our Rabbanim. We're going to do things with the same quality of, 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 of Talmudic expertise and, and look to our Rabbanim. That was one way. And then there was another way was we need youth, we need Americans, we need people that can speak the language, we need people who are willing to hear the psukim from the old rabbis, but the leaders and the people who are moving it should be the more forward-looking American type of rabbis. So that was the OU, actually, was the second type. And the Agudas HaRabonim, which formed after the OU, was saying, no, we're, we know we're in America, we're going to be more modern, we're going to deal with the government, etc., but we feel we're a much better ground. So Mendelssohn felt, Young Israel was much later, I think it was later. Mendelssohn was part of a, a, a group called the Knesset HaRabonim, and this was uh, formed in around 1920. And uh, it seems clear that part of what helped form the Knesset HaRabonim was, uh, and it's in, it's in the email, uh, you can read about it, is the Volstead Act, otherwise known as uh, the uh, Law of the Land, the 19th Amendment, I believe, to the Constitution, which, of course, was the 18th and 19th Amendment. Um, you can look it up. Uh, prohibition which basically, you know, the Jews had sort of been struggling with this because the temperance movement was a very strong thing in America in the 19th century. You know, America was a very Protestant country. Uh, you know, it still is if you... I've done a lot of reading about the evangelical movement and everything like that. You know that that was part of what they were pushing. America was very, you know, uh, uh, white bread and very conservative as far as that goes. And part of it was how terrible the, the scourge of liquor is, the liquor and wine and drunkenness. And I don't deny that there was addiction and problems all over. That wasn't the feeling, of course, of the Catholics who came. They didn't have the same sort of, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they drank more, but part of it was because, you know, wine featured much more in their, in their religion, the Eucharist and other things like that. But especially this had a tremendous effect on us because the even though when they wrote the legislation, they knew that, that well, religion still needs to, to happen and there needs to be wine, but they said it, it has to be a recognized authority like the Catholic Church, like the Protestant Church, whatever it is, 
granting permission for this particular rabbi, who's a member of their group, to be the producer of the wine. Meaning he can organize with the, the little few wineries, maybe in the United States or in uh, in Europe or other places, and be the, in charge of ex, of importing this wine, bringing it here to the United States, and then giving it to his congregants. Now, in church, what that meant was they, the Catholics, whoever it was, you know, they come in on Sundays and have the wine, and he was very, it was very controlled. But from our perspective, you just don't, you don't need wine just for the rap, for the, uh, you know, the, the chazan to make kiddush and shul, but you need wine. Every single household needs wine. And on Pesach, they need a tremendous amount of wine, right? And at a bris mila, you need wine. And at all these things. So what happened was, was that there was, and again, it's all documented. You can take a look in the New York Times and other places where there were front page stories of, 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 of abuses of this privilege, where rabbis um, uh, officially became in the 20s, uh, you know, they would get, I represent this, this institution, I have the right, I have this, uh, I have this tuda that I can produce wine, and it turned out, of course, they were producing wine for the bootleggers. They were producing wine, right, and they would, and, and the bootleggers in Chicago especially, it could be here in Passaic and other places, but what happens in the 20s and the 30s, which is incredible, is that the shoals change from being these small little ramshackle apartments to these huge edifices. Now, somebody said, well, the Jews got more money. Well, part of it was there was a trade-off, especially in Chicago. I can't speak for the ones <laughs> here, but something tells me that it's the same phenomenon, which was that the bootleggers and stuff uh, the, gave them a tremendous kickback in order to build their shoals, especially because they needed a huge basement to or places where the trucks could roll up and they could put all the wine on. And you know, the the, the there were there were pro. There's a um, you can read about it in what I've sent. What if, if you read some of the what I appended to today's sheer. You can read, there's, there's a, uh, a diary, there's the memoirs of, again, you, you can't make this stuff up, of this, of this prohibition agent called Izzy Einstein. So Izzy Einstein, prohibition agent, <laughs> he actually talks about this thing that he, that he, he intercepted all these supposedly rabbinical sanctioned wine and they were going to scotch taverns and other stuff like that. Like the guy pulling away from the, from the shul, you know, spoke to him, you know, like with a scotch So it really turned out to be a front page to Hashem that what the rabbis are involved in. And, 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 and what they tried to do was say, okay, we're going to limit which is a real organization, which isn't. And, uh, the, I, I think the OU was one and the Gudas Rabbanim was. And part of what the question was, will, will, will Knesset Sarabana become one? So there was all this, uh, there was all this type of, uh, pushing around, deciding. So it wasn't just who speaks for the Jews, but also about who gets the right to have the, the official government permission to start producing wine and to, to distribute wine. So these are things which are, you know, again, I, I have to tell you that um, I, 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 that was, I called cats and I also called 
uh, a fellow who was a student of mine and has really had a meteoric rise. And if you listen to this, you know, we, I really thank him because I called him and he picked up the phone in the Philadelphia airport where his flight had just been canceled. And he knew that he had to spend the night and he was willing to give me about 15 to 30 minutes on the phone, plus a tremendous amount of sources. So I thank him. He's uh, Rabbi Dr. Zev Elif, who is now, uh, was my student in high school, but is now the chief uh, educating. What? Uh, Elif, right? Yeah, he's worth a thousand. So he's actually the chief, uh, um, uh, the chief education officer, uh, the CEO, I guess, in a way, of Skokie Yeshiva, which is a, which is now a branch of Turo College. I don't know if you knew that. So he's actually, yeah. So you knew that, right? So Zev Elif is actually. So Zev has started. Zev has had a wonderful career, and he's written a number of uh, monographs that I appended here, and uh, he's got here about. Um, let's see if we can look at this for a second then. Um, and this is, was in Tradition Magazine about two years ago. Um, I'm still waiting for them to accept my, uh, what I sent them. No, that's not really true. <laughs> you know? But, uh, but he has here, um, uh, a discussion and you can see he mentions here the Knesset Sarabonim, but Zev makes the point um, historians grow accustomed to the name calling and consequently the innovative interpersonal promise found in many files and archives. Uh, yet for many Orthodox Jews interested in their community's history, the vitriol is no doubt too difficult to bear. But to hear about how they were fighting and how they were mudslinging against each other, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's nice to hear it, but what does it really gain as he goes on, Zev? He says, it's maybe irrelevant to a full telling of Orthodox Jewish history. The bulk of the battles waged between rabbinical organizations had little to do with the heralded keep up, upkeep and defense of Orthodox Judaism in the United States. According to a certain perspective, there's much to learn, maybe from the grueling polemics between the Yiddish-speaking rabbis and Americanized rabbis. So that's like the OU and the Agudas Sarabonim and the Knesset Sarabonim. And that's maybe on matters of how you should be in shul and schooling. But those these disputes, whoever came tankerous, throw light on the religious development of Orthodox Judaism in the New World. And we could talk about how we should do chinuch now, etc. Other historical data on petty squabbling during Prohibition, which I just mentioned to you, where basically the Agudas HaRabonim, and this is important to know, wanted to say that the Knesset HaRabonim is not even a real organization. And uh, they said that their leader, who was Rabbi Gavriel Zev Margolis, who was tremendous Tamachacham, they said, "Oh, he's a." Re- the, the New York Times says he's a he's a he's a Torah teacher, or something like that, which in those days was considered a tremendous insult to just someone who couldn't get a job and had to like take some money. Uh, and his vaunted offices of his supposed big organization is in the back of some tenement house, which of course was where. And the, the New York Times reporter went there and saw it. And who sicked him on him? The Agudas Arabonim. The Agudas Arabonim was the, were the ones who told the New York Times about this rival organization that was worthless. So you hear about this, and it's, it's very petty and terrible when you hear about it. And as, as Zev Elif says, maybe we should stay away from that. Um, they're less helpful. Um, these unseemly sides of Orthodox Jews can only prove harmful and is no wise constructive to the assembly of a collective American Orthodox memory. 
I get you. I, I bet you there's a number of people here too. Say, okay, this is interesting. But I, did I become from from this year, or what did I get from it? And I, I heard that there was fighting and stuff like that. But maybe we should just walk away from that. You know, when I was a teenager, one of the things that uh, interested me a lot was the Sabbatean movement. Uh, the movement I, I talked about it here a couple of months ago when we talked about David Farrar, the the doctor of in Amsterdam, who uh, we talked about uh, we. Talked about the, uh, the the burning of the city of Frankfurt and things like that. So we mentioned about the Sabbateanism, um, and many people believe that's something. Even though you know we should say, well, what, what do we need to get involved in that? That was an ugly part of our history. It was it was it was it was terrible what occurred. Nothing is gained by studying about it. Uh, all it does is show that. Exactly. <laughs> Very complimentary. Okay, so so what you're saying is we can learn from everything, and we should know that. <clears throat> um, right, but again, you know, to talk about how this rabbi really believed in Shab Six V, and this rabbi really thought he was a Mashiach, and this rabbi might have eaten on on Asarabatevis because that was the way they celebrated Shab Six V. I understand. I understand. But we shouldn't do. Again, and, and, and when I think about it, okay, so what is, you know, because this class, we're going to expose some of the, the raw uh, scars of, of these battles. Yeah. So he says, okay, Zavel, if I'm happy, he says this. He says, I contend this position is short-sighted. He says, he says, we can learn a lot. Uh, from this. And he goes through, and you can see where he makes the point that one of one of the things that had to do with the labor issues, which was had to do whether we should join the unions, was also a way to stop, as you know, there were these, every, everybody worked on Saturday. And it says here, Orthodox Jews joined the Baptist unions in support of socioeconomic reform that would enable workers to ask themselves on Saturday labor without penalty. Uh, by the way, we will actually pushed this as well, and he felt that this was something that we could do. We could work with the leftists who are saying this work week is example, <coughs> and this way it sort of paved the way to get Saturdays off, and uh, that there should be a five-day work week and allow them not to work on Shabbos. So as he says, you know, it's true that, um, this was something that he would say, you know, even though there was this battle about should we join with the communists or join with the leftists, you know, it ended up helping in a way, as you can see, um, uh, as you can see that that was what So again, as he says, uh, the, I, I'll tell you my answer, just to be honest with you. I'll <laughs> quote... Um, J-R-R, is that his, uh, Tolkien, right? Yeah. J, was it two R's or one R? Two. Two R's, J-R-R, Tolkien. So, you know, you know I, I'm not a, I, I'm not a, a, a Tolkienian, but I, 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 I appreciate people who believe it's like the greatest book that they've ever read, and they really believe there's a lot of depth, and I'm sure there is. But Tolkien once said, I'm sure there is. <laughs> what? You like, you like Tolkien? So Tolkien was once asked how he came up with this world, this world, this, this Middle Earth and all the different. So he says he was sitting outside uh, under a tree and he was taking a nap. And in his nap, uh, a very vivid dream occurred and some, a small 
being came over to him and woke him up in his dream. And he looked at him and he says, what are you? He says, I'm a hobbit. And he followed him and that's the way the story developed. I think the idea is that sometimes you get involved in something and something grabs a hold of you, you're not even sure where it comes from. And then you just follow it. And to me, you know, we don't have, <laughs> I'm going to show you the tshuva about, uh, about Machal Shabbos now. And let me show you this tshuva from, from Mendelssohn about Machal Shabbos. This is an incredible tshuva. <coughs> uh, I think it really speaks to, to our issue. A couple of minutes here. Let me just, let me find it for you. Um, so, Mendelssohn had a tshuva about, two tshuvas about Machal Shabbos. One of them, really got people upset. But this one, I think, really speaks to the heart of, of the matter. So let me find this, please. And there we go. Mishnah This had to do with whether... Okay. Open this up. And here we go. So I believe it is... Let's go to... This is what we're reading from last week when we talked about the fight. But this was the one that, uh, it's a small chupa, and I'm going to show you the response to it. And it really, I think, in many ways talks about what was happening at the time. It's about dealing with children that aren't keeping Shabbos. And, of course, it was an issue that needed to be maybe done with in a different way. But his question was a very practical halachic shayla. You're inviting your, you're, you're a European immigrant. You keep Shabbos. Your child doesn't keep Shabbos. Now it's time to bring him to your house. What sort of ways do you have to worry about him touching your wine? We know, Chazal say, that a person who's machal Shabbos b'farhesia, a person who doesn't keep the Shabbos openly, uh, has halachic, uh, we consider him halachically like a non-Jew. So here's the question right here. Nishalti kama pomim. I've been asked many times, Mendelssohn wrote, from parents, Yisrael. They're from but their children are Machal Shabbos openly. That's the way it is here in America. And their question is a very emotional, difficult question. They know that Allah says a person who doesn't keep Shabbos is like a non-Jew, and therefore you don't want him touching your wine. How about if that person is your child? How about that person is someone that you raised and you want to get him to come to your house? What are you going to do? He, the kid is smart enough to know what's going on, right? If the father, like, it's not like a, a comedy, like, like a Danny Kay thing where the vessel and the vessel where he's always, right? Where he's just trying to move the wine away, right? As the son goes, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, okay, oh, come step over here. And then all of a sudden the wine is pushed away and then the wine's up here and the wine is somewhere else, right? So that, that of course, the son is going to catch on. That, hey, what's going on, Dad? You don't want me touching this one? What, are we having a Savior? Well, I, I can't pour the wine for you? I know that's not the way you do it. 
there's people who won't to throw wine out if a non-Jew touched it. And we touched the Kli. And he said, those people are, 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 are causing a great loss of Jewish money. The Shach brings this Ramah. He says, for sure here, it's, it should be allowed. Now let's say your son, who's not, doesn't keep Shabbos openly, uh, picks up the bottle of wine and pours it into another cup. It says, even so, I think you can drink that cup. Why? Because even a non-Jew, there are poskim that say, if you look at Shulchan Aruch, that if a non-Jew does that in front of you, and this is the only wine that you have, and this would be a big loss, you're allowed to drink that wine. So he says, if that's true because of a big money loss, then here I should allow it because it's not just a money loss. There's an emotional sense of hatred that's going to occur between me and my children. Then he says another thing. He says, the Yisrael machali Shabbos b'farhesya b'zmanenu ain't l'choshvam b'chwal mumen. Let me explain what that sentence means. That this that we have, especially here in America, that he saw Jewish people not keeping the Sabbath, you can't say that they are deniers of God the way Chazal said they were. Why? The reason why they have started to be Machal Shabbos is because they started with an essential mistake that was like ingrained in the society. What was that mistake? That's mutter b'shvil hechrach parnosa. Because in order to earn a living and you would die without it, you would have to go and make a living. And again, this has been documented in many places. I know that a friend of mine who was uh, an old Montreal person said that in downtown Montreal, there's one uh, shul that has a um, that has a uh, Vasikan minion every Shabbos. And the reason they do is because, you can ex- understand why, because they needed to dive in as early as possible in order to go to work. And they, they still kept that, that show is still... The, the history of Hashanah Minyan in the U.S. is the same. 
Most Hashkama minions on Shabbos were a byproduct, not people who couldn't stand the rabbi droning on, right. but they had to get the work. Right. Or that, that, that their you know, wife was going to come later and they were going to go early or something. It was, it was so that people could go to work. <laughs> Very strange. Okay, I, I, I'm just telling you, I think this show is still there based on that old minog of, of uh, and there aren't, right? Rabbi, you wanted to get a condition, so yes, we'll okay. do that in this one, one more thing. there. So it's true. That's the way they started. Now, when they did it, and it became part of their mindset, now it's hard to change them. So therefore, now they're doing it, even if it doesn't have to do with parnosa. And he says, anyway, look at our kids. They do other mitzvahs. They do mitzvahs say, They do mitzvahs losas. Say they see that identically, identity-wise, the Jews of not, these kids of 1920s saw themselves as Jews, and therefore you cannot say that they have a din, even though they're machal shabbos like 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 a non-Jew. And he says the whole isser now because of, there's no avodah is because we're going to marry their children. So. That is with a non-Jew. We don't want intermarriage to happen. But he says there's nothing wrong. There's no issue to marry the daughters of of a Machal Shabbos. So even though you're going to come close to Machal Shabbos, it's not a problem. Therefore, you don't have to worry about them coming in your house, going to their house. Maybe it's different. But even when you go to their house, he says, if you if it's your child... And you believe he's being machabed you, you can trust him. Even though you know he's machal Shabbos, because a person has a right to have, as we talked about here in another shir about umdana, you have a right to believe someone close to you, even though the other person shouldn't believe him. So this is a psaac where Mendelssohn really took the reality. He didn't say we're going to change them, but here he was opening up a path. Maybe again, you can see why Postkin didn't like this, because here he was, Treating instead of he's Maui calling into the Machali shop, instead of saying that this is something we have, we have to stand against, he was actually trying to say that they're not really as bad as they were. Is this the path to get them to start being Machalim Shabbos or not? Many Rabbanim said this is the type of thing that shows that he's willing to just give up on them and not trying to make those type of changes. So this is a type of sap. We're going to do a Kaddish to Rabbanim. We'll do more about this next time. Okay, so you can you can uh, you can send that to me. Okay, great.
Ich habe eine Sendung. <lacht>